Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Nick Abrahams, who is the global co-leader of the digital transformation practice at Norton Rose Fulbright. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. So Nick, you're by trade a lawyer, but you're also involved in this digital space. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about what is this digital transformation practice and how did you get involved in that? Yeah, so... um The digital transformation practice is really working together. So we have a consulting uh, business now within Norton Rose, and we also have a technology consultancy business as well. So it's working together across all of those disciplines to help our clients as they digitally transform themselves. And that could be from anything like, um, you know, trying to understand, you know, what sort of ERP systems to deploy and and sort of negotiating those outcomes. But also what we've seen tremendous interest uh, recently is in Web3 and how they can be involved in um, in crypto and, um, you know, metaverse, NFTs and so forth. So and then in terms of how I got involved, so I've, I've got a background, I, I am a lawyer and then I was a, a creative executive at Warner Brothers in Hollywood for a couple of years and then I in ran Hollywood. a... Yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, then I had a... I had an epiphany as I was a as I was a Hollywood studio executive that um, the number of sociopaths actually in Hollywood is significantly larger than uh, in the normal community. So left that, and then I was a COO of an original dot com uh, called Spike Networks that we listed on the ASX back in '99, and um, and that was great. It sort of looked like never work again time until the crash happened, and so as my as my equity was going south, um, my interest in the law and in feeding our children rekindled. And so about 20 years ago, came back to Sydney and, yes, I practice in the in the technology space, doing a lot of technology M&A and investment mostly, but I have a broader practice across privacy and cyber and technology procurement. Yeah, and I believe you're also one of the co-founders of the online legal service uh, Law Path in Australia. How did that come about? Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, I had been sort of heavily involved in .com 1, and felt like I had unfinished business with the internet. And so seven years ago, very kindly, my firm allowed me to use uh, some of my annual leave to start up a, a business, a separate business called LawPath. And so uh, that's gone really well. I mean, it, uh, it's, it hasn't been a linear trajectory. Um, it's had its ups and downs for sure. But uh, the business is going well. We've got 55 people working in the business 
about 300,000 customers. And the aim is to help small and medium business uh, with, their, with their legal solutions. Excellent, excellent. So today we wanted to focus a little bit on the digital asset space. I mean, digital disruption is quite a broad sort of area. But we thought maybe we focus a little bit on, on um, NFTs in particular, uh, non-fungible tokens, and, and a bit of cybersecurity as well. If we start with NFTs, um, I sort of looked at it and we saw recently this, this uh, um, Twitter uh, tweet that was the first one to be sent out by Jack Dorsey. And we looked at it and it, it was, I think he sold it for $2.9 million. And then more recently, came up for auction again, struggled to sell for $280. And it sort of seems this classic sort of bubble asset where it's super volatile, you don't know what it's worth. Why is this relevant to your client? Yeah, oh, it's, a, oh, it's a big question. Um, and maybe just to, to put it into context, too, if we think about NFT, non-fungible tokens, so that as a market in 2020 was worth $13 million US dollars, and in 2021 it was worth $41 billion. And so a massive explosion. And elements of that are related to... Um, sort of what I call flex club NFTs, which are these things like board apes and so forth that your listeners may have heard about. And they're selling for millions of dollars and no one can really understand why. And that's really, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people who've made a lot of money in crypto who don't want to convert it into fiat for a whole range of reasons, not, not, uh, not excluding tax issues. And so they've created an asset class and so they, they sell that asset between themselves and that's, you know, that's one aspect to it. But where it becomes super relevant to, I think, a lot of corporates is around, so the collectibles proposition. So if you're a sporting code now anywhere in the world, you are looking at NFTs. Um, so the, the key standout is the National Basketball Association, the US Basketball Association. So they minted a whole range of NFTs, which were just very short video clips of great moments in basketball. And over 700 million US dollars of uh, so-called top shot NFTs changed hands last year. And the great part about an NFT is that when it's on sold, the NBA gets 5% of all future on sale. So it's just a massive revenue stream. And, and so we've got the, the tennis, Tennis Australia, they had an NFT drop for in, in January for the Australian Open. We've got Cricket Australia dropping NFTs soon. We've got the AFL uh, dropping NFTs soon as well. So it's that, that old collectible space. And then finally, um, just in terms of uh, corporate NFTs and really as an extension of the loyalty program, and there's some opportunity to make, make revenue from that as well. Yeah. So what do you think is the attraction of owning one? Is it more akin to like a licensing agreement or is it just purely as a, a collector's folly? Yeah, I think um, so right at the moment, uh, the, the market is, is, is an on, what's, what's called an on-chain market. So um, no one's making NFTs and selling them to people who aren't crypto natives, you know, it's just, it hasn't it hasn't crossed that bridge yet because it's slightly complex. You've got to have a MetaMask wallet, and that's a that's a non-trivial exercise to actually get one of those. And then the question is, what do you do with it once you've got it? And, and why do I care about having this digital asset? So I think you know the market is definitely crypto natives, 
And they are, um, you know, there, there's a collector mentality there and there's also, um, you know, people who are traders and although many of them would, would say that they hold the NFT, so-called diamond hands in, in the parlance of crypto. So I think um, we need to recognise that the market is not everyone. The market is an on-chain market right at the moment. And then you need to build up that market on channels like crypto Twitter and Discord, um, which is a social media platform mostly for gamers. And so if you look at the tennis NFT drop, which is probably the most successful sort of broad-scale Australian NFT drop, uh, they had over 20,000 Discord users in their community. So you've got to build this community you drop the NFTs into the community and then the community supports it because they're expecting additional benefits from that NFT. So not just that I've got a you know, a pretty sort of digital tennis ball, but I'll get something in future. I might get you know, free NFTs, which is sort of like a dividend stream in, in sort of old parlance. Yeah. So in your practice, do you have clients that have dived into this NFT industry? Yes, yeah, definitely. So... Um, you know, there's the collectibles industry, as I said. Uh, you know, sporting codes. It is a it is an absolute no-brainer um, to be involved in those. So we've been doing some great work in that space. Uh, and then I think ticketing. Uh, if you've got so ticketing is in many cases a sort of collectible. So some tickets people want to remember. So if you look at Coachella Music Festival this year, uh, ticketing via NFT. The Super Bowl was ticketed via NFTs. Um, and and the, um, the the US football, they're doing they did two hundred fifty thousand NFT tickets last year. So I think ticketing, where you've got a you know a collectible proposition around that, so concert ticketing and so forth, that's a good space. Uh, and then we get down to uh, I guess the the uh, consumer facing retail NFT folks, and that's been driven largely. So first and foremost was fashion, and so you look at folks like Prada and Gucci, um, they were very quick into the NFT space. And that's both as an extension, I guess, of a loyalty program so that, you know, you've you've got your NFT holder, you continue to keep them engaged by giving them other things. Um, so it's like a loyalty program. But also they've been making money by selling NFTs of their, uh, you know, of their fashion merchandise. So you look at Dolce & Gabbana, um, they, uh, they sold... Uh, six suits for $9 million. And the proposition was they're, they're real suits, but they're twinned with a digital suit um, that your avatar can wear. So if, you, you know, if you're not in the gaming world, this is irrelevant to you. But, um, you know, a lot of people who've made money out of crypto are deep in the gaming world. So I think it's building up from there. And then just some other, um, just quickly, some really interesting things that we've worked in. So NFTs is really just tokenization of things. So cryptocurrency, you know, Bitcoin, it's a token um, equally, um, NFT is non-fungible token. So it's a, it's a, it's a digital token. And so what we've done is for companies uh, where we've done employee token option plans, where the employees they get equity through a normal ESOP, but they also get a, a token through the token option plan. And I've got to say, the um, the folks who we issued these tokens to, they wanted the tokens more than they wanted the options because in an <laughs> unlisted company, uh, you know, just getting equity is um you know is unhelpful unless you get an exit so you get some liquidity whereas tokens uh can be liquidated quickly uh so we're seeing you know a lot of movement in that space uh as well as um in investments where uh so uh money is being paid in as an investment equity 
comes out in return, but also tokens uh, come out in return. And then you have what's called the tokenomic schedule, which appears in these investment documents now. And they're the rules around which the investee can um, issue further tokens. And so there's a whole range of restraints on that. A little bit like the concept of issuing further equity under a shareholders agreement. So, uh, so with yeah. that, the, are those tokens akin to, say, an informal share or are they more like an informal form of cash? Yeah. What, what, what do they look like? Yeah. So it's so it's a it's it's sort of a it's a combination of characteristics. I, I mean, it's the most it's one of the most interesting things I've come across in my career. Frankly, I find it fascinating because we've always had cash, understand cash really well. We've always had shares, understand shares really well, and now companies have the ability to create this third asset, um, which has tradeability. And so it's, you know, it, but it can act like uh, sort of shares in that you can sell them to other people and, and sell them quite easily through what's called decentralized exchanges. So I think there's a real, um, you know, we're just at the beginning of this, uh, but if you look at any of the big NFT companies, uh, they are they are largely driven off their tokenomics proposition. So, you know, for, for investors who want to get in this business, then you do need to understand how tokenomics works. But it's a it's a new asset class. Yeah. So sometimes when I talk to institutional investors, because that's that's our main audience, they, they look at this space and they think, well, it's all nice and well, but it definitely has a little bit of a, a, a bubble feel to it. But they're interested in the underlying technology, in the, in the blockchain. So they, to say it crudely, they think that maybe crypto and NFTs are a bit of hype, but that the real substance is in the underlying blockchain technology. Are they wrong? Um, well, your listeners could not be wrong. Of that, 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 <laughs> <laughs> heavens above, no. So look, so so my way of thinking about this is quite is is, is simple in one respect. So I feel like you know if we look at crypto, so crypto now on any given day is between two and three trillion dollars of market cap of sort of all of the, the major crypto coins. Um, and then if you look at um, DeFi, decentralized finance, running at, you know, anywhere between 100 and 200 billion of locked value on a daily basis. And then you look at NFT, so 41 billion. So so this is this represents, you know, a digital asset class, um, which we've never had before. And so the question I think on investors' mind should be, what does this class look like in five years? So do you punt on the thesis that digital assets are not a thing? In which case you say that all of that value that's been created is in some way going to evaporate? Uh, and Or do you say, yeah, I think digital assets are here to stay? Um, and, I, and that's what I think. I think that digital assets are here to stay. It's a fascinating area. There are enormous sums of money being made, also significant amounts being lost, of course. But, but we, in five years' time, digital assets will be a very significant asset class. But the the pathway will not be linear. There's going to be, you know, technology problems. There's going to be cybersecurity problems. There's going to be, you yeah. know, fraud. But I would say to investors, you've got to get on board and understand how this works. And look at Fidelity in the US. So they've just announced that um, for their 401k holders um, that they will be able to have access to Bitcoin. You know, we're seeing little by little, uh, you know, these, uh, uh, this, this adoption 
Bitcoin or crypto is largely a retail proposition right at the moment. In fact, B2B has has failed, you know, or has not been very big. We've had Ripple, which has got problems in terms of inter- interbank transactions using crypto. That hasn't worked terribly well. But, you know, little by little, ANZ just minted a smart coin. So, um, so sorry, a stable coin. Um, so, you know, I think we're seeing opportunities and I think people need to be Involved. I'm not, I'm not saying you have to sort of bet the house. but So when we look at these NFTs, um, you mentioned the gaming environment. Yeah. And, and there's sort of a real application where mm. people want to get a fancy sword or they want to have a cape and, and they have to pay for that. To what degree does this, um, the investment in NFTs also is a punt on the metaverse taking off where people may be anticipating if I want to be rich in the metaverse, I better start collecting some assets now. Is there an element to that? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure uh, to your um, your listeners are like, why are we listening to these people talk about you know swords and capes and gaming and so forth? But I think it's really important because what we've seen is that the um, uh, the business models of the metaverse are actually being proven out in the gaming environment. And so the easiest way to to see that is if you look at traditional gaming, like something like Fortnite, for example. Uh, so when you go there and you buy, uh, you know, a skin, which is sort of a suit of armor or whatever that has special properties, which helps you advance in the game. Uh, so you pay that money to the owner of Fortnite and, and your value, your investment is locked to Fortnite. Um, so if you lose interest in Fortnite, you know, that money is gone. Uh, but what we see with the so-called play-to-earn gaming platforms like Axie Infinity and Zedrun, which is an Australian um, play-to-earn game doing very well, is it's the ability for, you know, you buy things, um, you buy those, you know, those sort of virtual assets, be it the sword or the, or the cloak, but you buy them from third parties not from the actual owner of the platform and and so what that means is that the platform gives an opportunity for other organizations or other people to create businesses on top of their platform so they're the ones selling the skins and then once you get that skin you can sell that on a separate on a on a on a secondary market Um, so so we've created an entire economy whereas before we had a very uh, you know, it's almost a command control relationship with the owner of the platform, whereas now the platform is enabling a, 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 an economy to run on that. Um, so I think that's that's where we we sort of see the opportunity. And you know, a great example of for the for more traditional investors uh, is what's happening with so-called game guilds, where um, these are uh, basically with things like the metaverse. Metaverse is just conceptually, it's just you know, what we're seeing with more immersive platforms. We've always had it in gaming. Gaming gaming platforms like Fortnite and so forth are effectively metaverse platforms. Now there's Sandbox and Decentraland and so forth. They're more specialist, um, general purpose um, uh, or non-gaming uh, platforms. But what we've seen in, say, say Axie Infinity is it's become very popular in places like the Philippines. And so you've got people who do nothing but play Axie Infinity as their job because they can earn within the game. And um, But it's quite expensive if you want to be you know, a legitimate player in that game. You need to spend about 2,000 US on a whole range of sort of avatar-related stuff, so your sword and, and so forth, conceptually. And so in the Philippines, people don't have that sort of money. And so they effectively borrowed the 
um, the NFTs, so the sword and cloak and so forth, they borrow that from the game guild and then they split the, um, the earnings that they make uh, from that. So, you know, from a traditional investment point of view, that's quite simple. You know, we're seeing that you've got an asset, you make that available for someone else and, you know, in this case you do a revenue split on what they make out of it. And so you can do a DCF on, um, on, on, on gaming assets. So I think we look to that and go, how does that apply outside of gaming into you know, the, the non-gaming metaverse? Yeah, that, that's an interesting concept because as you said, you can do a discounted cash flow analysis of that. But you also, you did a video where uh, you sort of in a, in a humorous way explain what NFTs are with a gaming element around it. And I remember from that where you showed that an NFT of, of a yacht went for 650,000 US dollars, which I presume is with the idea of that this person uh, uh, wants to portray himself in the metaverse or in whatever platform as this wealthy person with a yacht. Um, but it's, it's getting to quite high amounts. Um, how do you determine the value of, of, of a, a standalone NFT? Yes, well, it's, um, so so the yacht one. I mean, there's there's loads of them out there. So you've got crypto punks as well. They're just you know uh, pixelated looking um, the drawings of punks, bored apes. Just once again, sort of you know not not particularly artistic drawings of different sorts of apes. Um, those are this sort of flex club type NFT. So I think we just put them in that category and say that this is a sort of NFT which is, I guess, the digital equivalent of owning a Ferrari. Um, so if you've made money on, uh, through crypto and you want to show that you're, you, know, you understand the crypto world, then owning a bored ape is a, is a way to do that. And now, say, for example, on Twitter, you can use your NFT as your profile pic and they will validate that it's your NFT. Uh, so that's sort of the start, if you like, of of showing, you know, it's 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 digital flexing, you know, it's showing off um, yeah. <laughs> in the in, on the uh, you know in in the inter- on the internet. So I think that's that's sort of you know that I mean doesn't fully explain it because it still seems a ludicrous amount of money to pay for, you know, what is effectively you know a, uh, a sort of JPEG or a screenshot. But yeah, it's um yeah that's just where they end up. I thought one of the interesting application was one um, where you did a webinar with Penfolds. Oh and yeah. You mentioned it earlier. It's sort of a loyalty program, and there's an element of gifting involved in it. But I also looked at that, and, and I'm like, well, one of the reasons why it's interesting is that it's it's backed up with sort of physical assets. There's there's real wine involved. There's potentially a meeting uh, with with a wine master involved. Um, do you think that that it will always require that sort of link back to real life um, in, in sort of a corporate environment? Okay, maybe just to explain to folks just quickly how the Penfolds NFT works, because it is a good example of what's known as fidgetal, which is physical and digital and merging of those two um, experiences. So so basically for Penfolds, uh, for their premium wines, their biggest market is gifting. And as as we're all aware, you know, giving a bottle of wine is is a complex proposition because wine's fragile, etc. And particularly if it's an expensive wine, it needs to be kept at a certain temperature. And so what they've done is they they issued NFTs. Um, so you got one NFT per bottle of wine, and that wine was kept is kept in storage in Singapore at correct climate control and so forth. And if you want that wine, you just redeem the NFT, and the wine then is sent to you. 
So that feels sensible. And then if you want to gift it, you just send an email literally with this code and that gifts the, the bottle of wine. So that's been very successful for them. The problem with um, Fidgetal and the linking of a digital, of you know, something digitally with something physical is how do you prove that that physical thing actually exists? So if it's all digital, fantastic. You know, it's all it all sits on the blockchain. We can validate that you know this particular uh, you know line of code exists, and so therefore you know this yacht, for example, this, this digital yacht, easy to show. Uh, that it exists uh, because it's all digital. Where it's physical, you've then got to prove out that um, it, it exists. And so that goes against one of the core concepts, I guess, of the crypto world, which is you then need to have someone actually validate that the real world thing exists. So um, with Penfolds, I think we trust Penfolds. So we go, okay, well, Penfolds will make sure that I do get that bottle of wine. But if it wasn't Penfolds, you know, if it was just someone who started up and there's been, you know, wine fraud uh, in the premium end before, um, you know, how can I trust that that bottle of wine actually exists and that that is my bottle of wine? So I, I actually think probably the, at least right at the moment, the the NFT world works best for things that can exist purely digitally. So ticketing, for example, or collectibles. Um, but it, it's harder actually to do NFTs, and particularly from an investment point of view, you know, we've looked at doing cows as NFTs because uh, every cow has a unique identifier. Um, but but you still need someone to validate that that cow's alive and in that paddock, and that you're the only one who has an entitlement to it. Whereas if that cow was just digital, you could prove that out on online. It almost sounds like a, a new form of option rather than a, an asset in itself. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I think is, is interesting is where. Um, it, it's proof ownership of a digital file, right? So some digital files can be quite high value files. Um, and I think, for instance, I like music and I'm thinking of, you know, the, the, the files that are the master recordings of particular sessions are files that, you know, you want to make sure that they are properly stored in and that the ownership is very clear. So to a degree, it seems like, are, are we still in a testing out phase? What, what is actually tradable? What is maybe yeah. worthless? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. And there's going to be a lot that's worthless. Um, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of NFTs out there now. Um, I mean, particularly, you know, I say to people who are looking at investing in, in NFTs, I mean, if you, well, you need to spend at least 50 hours understanding the market because it's not, you know, I've had, you know, some organisations come up to me and say, well, we know that bored apes sold well. So we've got, you know, this linkage to an ape concept. And so we want to do an NFT because we think it will sell it. I mean, they don't sell because it's a drawing of an ape. It sells for a whole variety of other reasons to do with the community that's come around that project, who the promoters were, what their reputation is in the uh, in the community, and so forth. So, so we are we are growing. But I think you know, I I often talk about the use case that I'm most excited about for the protection of digital assets is the protection of our digital information. And there are organisations right at the moment who are creating you know, the digital twin of, of, you know, so you can have your own digital twin of, say, for example, your health information. And then, you know, what would be nice, I think, is to flip the, um, the control of, say, for example, your health information or your financial information back to the person whose information it is. And so literally with a smart contract, you could, and, and protecting um, the information with NFT-style technology, 
the, the proposition is, it's, it's hard to do, but the proposition is that you could protect that information such that when you go to the doctor, um, that information you know, becomes part of your sort of digital twin NFT and then through the smart code, you can determine which other doctors get to see that. You know, does Medicare get to see it? Do specialists get to see it? Um, but you know, you could also make sure that you know, say for example, certain I don't know, pharma companies or something like that don't don't get to see it, or you know, third-party service providers who just want to you know who might want to sell you something. So yeah, I think there's there's a range of opportunities. We are we are just at the very very early yeah. stages. So you mentioned as well that with with all these digital assets, um, the security of those assets becomes more important as well. And part of your focus as well is, is cybersecurity. Now, when I sort of uh, uh, did a bit of research on, on what all the stuff you're involved in, um, it came upon this thing where it said, you've been negotiating with ransomware attackers. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a, I mean, I never thought I'd be sort of working sort of with, with the criminal element, I guess, but it just sort of ended up that way. So in uh, so I wrote a book on, on privacy and cybersecurity related issues and so have, have a good practice helping out organisations uh, sort of prepare for, you know, privacy and their cybersecurity obligations. And also we have a very big practice, Norton Rose Fulbright, my firm, globally in um, breach response. So what to do when you are hit with a cyber attack and that has grown that that part of our our organization has grown very significantly in the last three to four years and we've seen particularly ransomware really jump up over the last two years and so yeah what we end up in a situation is where you've got uh, a company that's been hit with a ransomware attack and they've got five days to make a decision whether they're going to pay you know a million dollars in bitcoin or not to get their systems decrypted and it's um Oh, it's fascinating, uh, and and there's just there's a lot more of it than um, you know. It just it, it grows incredibly. So when you look at sort of um, the development of that and and cyber criminality in, in general, I mean, we've seen now with the invasion of the Uru- Ukraine how large a part of even today's uh, well warfare it is. Um, it's massive. Do you get a sense of that the problem is is just getting worse and worse, or are we winning the cyber war? <laughs> oh no, the problem's getting worse and worse. Yeah, I um, I, I just I I'm not sure. To be frank, I don't know how how this ends because it is an arms race, and you know the criminals can just spend their time, uh, you know, coming up with different ways to um, to get inside systems. And um, and so it does feel like organisations and governments and so forth are on the back foot. So yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, you know, other than you know, we need to have a lot of focus on it. I think that you know, at the board level of most organisations, there's there's a good focus. And I do I do two different sorts of simulations. So I do a, a cyber breach simulation for senior leadership teams, and then I do one for boards, which is shorter. And I talk about because it. For boards, they've um, they have if they are hit with a ransomware attack, they have to make a decision the like of which they've never made before, and that is should they pay a criminal to get an advantageous outcome for the company, as in they'll get the decryption key. And boards are not set up for making those decisions. You know, should you pay, uh, you know, someone who is trying to blackmail you, and um, and so I, I take the these the boards through these um, 
through these scenarios is very interesting. I've never had um, a unanimous board. There's always people who are like, no, we shouldn't pay them. So, um, yeah, it's it's definitely it's definitely growing, uh, and I think boards particularly are very focused and should be very focused on it. Yeah. Is ransomware sort of the main issue or what sort of cases do you deal with? Yeah, yeah, there's two issues. So um, ransomware is the big one because that could be around. And it's not it's not like in a Hollywood movie where, you know, the attackers are sitting, you know, somewhere in their garage and they've identified this particular organization and they're going to go and attack them. Um, it's basically just a, you know, it's for the most part, it's just they just spray... Uh, these phishing emails, uh, you know, just you know, many, many thousands a day um, phishing emails with the hope that actually someone clicks the link and or opens the attachment and then the malware is deployed. So it's, it's in a very haphazard manner for the most part. So that's why ransomware is so important and, and, and so big and everyone needs to be prepared for that. And we've had, I mean, Mimecast, which is one of the big sort of cyber companies, they did an analysis which said that two-thirds of Australian companies have in the last year were hit by some form of ransomware attack. Uh, and that's that's probably right, I think. Um, so so I think you've got ransomware is the big issue. And then the other one is uh, sovereign states attacking. And, you know, if you're sitting on uh, on important IP, then, uh, you know, there, there is certainly a risk that sovereign states... Uh, will will attack and try to get access to that. Maybe we finish up with a question of a bit of crystal ball gazing. Mm-hmm. What, what is... Uh, yeah, it feels kind of sad. I feel like I've, uh, <laughs> I've painted a terrible picture for the world. <laughs> yeah, that's the risk of uh, ending up with cyber security. Yeah, yeah. But, but if you look at sort of all the different spaces that you look at within digital disruption, uh, what is the development that you're most excited about? Yeah, so I I must say I it took me a little while to come around to to crypto, um, but it is it is extraordinary uh, what I've seen, particularly things like decentralized finance. I mean, they've effectively replicated the existing financial system in terms of you know borrowing and saving and so forth, uh, and it's it's all happened incredibly quickly, and so. I think that you know the opportunities are extraordinary. I mean, I've had two meetings with founders in the last month, um, with two separate founders, who've both said they expect 1,000x returns. Now, you know, I can remember the good old days when we thought 10x was a good outcome, but you know, 1,000x. But there are companies, literally in Australia in the DeFi space, that have done 1,000x returns. So, uh, for me, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. There'll be there'll be regulation, etc. But I, I'm keenly focused on how crypto goes mainstream and that's why you know i do i do this podcast uh, web3 from uh, from mystery to main street where i talk to organizations to understand or you know my, my guests to explain how they've embraced crypto and um and it's extraordinary you've got kpmg buying crypto to hold on the balance sheet uh and you've got pwc buying land in the metaverse and so forth so lots of organizations so you wouldn't have thought were were, were particularly big risk takers are getting involved. So yeah, I think probably crypto is um, is, is my big focus right now. So do you got a big crypto investment? <laughs> Sadly, no, no, no. It's uh, <laughs> very modest. Fair enough. Well, Nick, it was great having you on the show, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. 
thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.